from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony. It's Deviance in Cast, with your host Eric P. Y'all ready for this? So powerful. Now that not only pals are placing it. A few heart-stopping seconds of anxiety. And welcome to the Deviant Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia, and the only deviant thing about me is my sociocultural heterogeneity. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. I should say before we get going this week, I was all set to record a podcast about things other than current events and war and economics, but stuff kept happening, so hopefully next week I'll get to that other show that I have planned. It's a little more low-key. I am trying to be a little more low-key this week in general. Uh, I've gotten some feedback from people who say they might like to have it toned down a little bit, so I I hear that, and I appreciate the feedback, so keep it coming, people. ESB at FBESP.org if you have questions or uh, things you want clarified or anything you want me to talk about more, if you think I can shed some light on something, I'll be happy to take a crack at it. I'd also like to say uh, a little bit about some of my inspirations for the reboot of the Syncast of 2012. Uh, I did do this show for many years, well, a, a year or so in the past, and I was about five years ago, and then I put it on hold. It became a chore, and I rebooted it this year, and there's several reasons for that. I think the the, the, nation, the notion of the podcast has sort of evolved over time, and I figured out sort of how I want to approach it differently now, and uh, I've been listening to some podcasts that have really helped me to figure out how I want to approach this thing. Uh, and one of those is Greg Proops, uh, the guy who was on Whose Line Is It Anyway? He does a podcast called The Smartest Man in the World, uh, a.k.a. The Proops Cast, and it's very funny, and he's very engaging. He takes questions from the audience, and I like the way that he has a whole lot of knowledge about a wide variety of issues, and I sort of imagine myself to have a similar sort of treasure trove of things to talk about. I'm also very fond of Le Show, which is a podcast done by Harry Shearer, who you may know from The Simpsons. He was also in Spinal Tap as uh, Derek Smalls, the bassist, and uh, all the other... movies like that, Best in Show and Mighty Wind and the rest of them. His little show is him sort of just talking about a lot of news stories and providing a few comments here and there, but mostly just uh, sticking to what's going on in the world and providing some uh, interesting things that you probably wouldn't hear about on a standard uh, news broadcast. I'm also a big fan of Jim Hightower, who is a uh, sort of populist leftist uh, commentator from Texas, and uh, he does a podcast called The Common Sense Commentaries, where he just sort of uh, talks for two or three minutes about something going on in the U.S., and uh, he's always got a lot of good stuff to say, so I'm very happy with him. And, of course, The Bugle, anybody who doesn't listen to The Bugle, well, you might as well not listen to any podcasts at all, because The Bugle is the funniest and most interesting podcast that's available right now. It's one of those podcasts, as soon as it's out, it's the first thing I listen to, you know, and uh, it's got John Oliver and 
Andy Zaltzman, two British comedians who are just fantastic. They're intelligent. Their jokes are funny, but they're not uh, simple. And Andy brings a lot of silly puns in. And uh, John Oliver, of course, those of you who watch The Daily Show, you're familiar with him. You definitely should check out The Bugle. It's a great show. So, of course, my aspiration is to sort of come close to those uh, podcasts. I don't believe that I ever come near them. But anyway, that just lets you know. And if you're interested in hearing some other things that may help to uh, give you a sense of the world or whatever, uh, those those shows might be useful to you. All right. Let's start with some current events, uh, namely Trayvon Martin, and I'm not going to say too much about him this week because it's really all over the news. Uh, if you don't know about Trayvon Martin, you should totally look it up. It's a very important story. It took place in Sanford, Florida. A guy named uh, George Zimmerman shot and killed a kid named Trayvon Martin, and uh, there's been a whole lot of news breaking about this. A uh, few points that I wanted to make. Uh, first of all, the family, the lawyer for the Martin family pointed out recently in a press conference that, okay, so George Zimmerman has said that it was self-defense, that he shot and killed Trayvon Martin out of self-defense because he was doing neighborhood watch and he saw Trayvon Martin, he looked suspicious. So the, tra- the, the Martin family lawyer pointed out in a press conference that self-defense, that's a case that you make in a, in a court of law. That's an argument you might make in front of a judge. Yeah, and there may be some merit to what he says, uh, although new police video that just came out suggests that there was no blood on George Zimmerman. You know, he said he had uh, bloody and bruised head injuries after this fight he had with Trayvon Martin, but the police uh, surveillance video that was just released indicates no uh, head wounds or any kind of blood on George Zimmerman at the time of his uh, initial questioning by the police. So the the lawyer of the Martin family said that, you know what, look, that may be a case that has merit in court, but but that hasn't even been, that's not, that's not a question because he hasn't been arrested. So uh, I, like many other people, believe that George Zimmerman should be arrested and that there should be a trial, and uh, we'll see what happens when that actually takes place. In the meantime, unfortunately, some people believe that uh, it's not, enough to wait for the Justice Department or somebody else to um, file charges against George Zimmerman. And so there's this group called the New Black Panther Party who have announced a $10,000 reward for the capture of George Zimmerman. And I think this is a big mistake. I think it's a it's a messed up situation, and it's a messed up situation all around. I certainly don't blame the new Black Panther Party for being angry. As I've said before, this sort of uh, thing isn't specific or new. This isn't a one-time thing. Unfortunately, a lot of young black men get shot and killed um, by law enforcement, never mind neighborhood watch uh, volunteers. And very little is often done about this. And so I don't, again, don't blame the new Black Panther Party for being angry about it, but I don't really think it's a good idea to try to encourage some sort of vigilante justice of someone capturing George Zimmerman somehow. And we saw this have a real-life impact for somebody when, and again, it's not just the new Black Panther Party that's responsible here, uh, Spike Lee got what he thought was the address of George Zimmerman, and he retweeted it. Now, even if it were the correct address, I wouldn't be in favor of that. I think that's messed up. I think it's a sense of vigilante justice. And I understand some people say, well, the court system and the police are not doing their jobs, so we have to take this other step in order to bring justice. But you know what? I don't considering the Justice Department has only been working on this for like a week, I think it's jumping the gun to say, oh, let's delete the guy's address. I don't like that. I think it's stupid. The point is, of course, that Spike Lee did not have the right address, and so he put the uh, name and address of somebody who is a school cafeteria lunch lady and her husband. And according to this news report, uh, it says that um, 
Death threats, hate mail, swarming reporters, and fearful inquiries from neighbors were all too much for the woman, 70, who has a heart condition, and her husband, 72, who temporarily moved into a hotel to avoid the spotlight and possible danger. So I think that's really stupid. I think Spike Lee needs to apologize if he hasn't already. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty messed up scenario there. And as I said, uh, new police video footage that shows no blood or bruises on George Zimmerman. ABC News says um, that uh, surveillance video was obtained exclusively by ABC News. Uh, as he exits the car, his hands are cuffed behind his back. Zimmerman is frisked and led down a series of hallways, still cuffed, etc. So this is a case I'm going to be looking at for a while, and I expect other people will be following. And it's certainly not over yet, and we'll see uh, sort of what the next developments are. Meanwhile, let's talk a little bit about Afghanistan. Uh, as you probably know, this is the we're entering like the tenth year of the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, and I came across two very interesting pieces about it recently. One is by a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Daniel L. Davis, and uh, he the piece is called "Truth Lies in Afghanistan: How Military Leaders Have Let Us Down." And he wrote, uh, "I spent last year in Afghanistan visiting and talking with U.S. troops and their Afghan partners. My duties with the Army's Rapid Equipping Force took me into every significant area where our soldiers engaged the enemy. Over the course of 12 months, I covered more than 9,000 miles and talked, traveled, and patrolled with troops in Kandahar and a number of other provinces." And he says, "What I saw bore no resemblance to rosy official statements by U.S. military leaders about conditions on the ground." It's it's a really interesting piece. I encourage you to read the whole thing because he has a very good overview of sort of what he's seen and then compares it to uh, official military officials in the U.S. Uh, hierarchy who say, oh, things are getting better in Afghanistan. We just need to stay a little while longer and we'll be making the kind of progress that will allow us to claim victory. But toward the end of the piece, he says this, How many more men must die in support of a mission that is not succeeding and behind an array of more than seven years of optimistic statements by U.S. senior leaders in Afghanistan? No one expects our leaders to always have a successful plan, but we do expect, and the men who do the living, fighting, and dining deserve to have our leaders tell us the truth about what's going on. And I think that's a really important point. I said last week that I think that, uh, you know, I have some friends who have served in the military. I have of former students who are in the military now, some that have served in the military and, and, and have retired from their service. And um, I think that we owe it to the men and women who are willing to put on that uniform and risk their lives to serve our country, to never send them into harm's way unless it is necessary for uh, the interests of the United States or some sort of um, achievable goal for the interests of you know, peace and, and, and improvement of a situation. And I was listening to a piece from uh, Tavis Smiley does a really good interview show on PBS, and he had a guest on recently, uh, a guy named uh, Sean Parnell, who was a former U.S. Army Ranger, and he wrote a lot about he wrote this book called Outlaw Platoon, which is about his experiences in uh, Afghanistan, and he mentioned that. You know, he he didn't really suffer from the kind of post-traumatic stress disorder that some vets deal with, but he had certain forms of that uh, difficulty coming back home, and uh, he received two bronze stars and the Purple Heart uh, while he was serving overseas. And he made the point that a lot of vets, unfortunately, sort of having been through horrible trauma and, and seeing people getting killed and having to deal violent damage to other people, a lot of vets 
come back, and we saw this after Vietnam. A lot of vets will come back, and they'll. He Parnell says that when he was out with his friends one day, he was talking about his serving overseas, and he, you know, he saw some kids getting killed or something, and he said that totally brought the conversation down. And he said, I, I learned at that point that I needed to avoid talking about this sort of thing, so that I wouldn't have to. Uh, he talked about it in terms of you know entering the military in order to protect people in the U.S. And he saw his need to not talk about his service overseas as a way of trying to protect his friends and the people around him from understanding this uh, horrible experience and or, or trying to witness that horrible experience. And then he said, you know what I realized is that that's not okay and that people in the United States need to be able to hear the truth about what soldiers overseas have seen and experienced so that those soldiers don't have to try to keep it bottled up and dwelling on that anger and the fear and the frustration and the, the trauma they've been through. And having it consume them in the way that it consumes so many Vietnam-era veterans. And I think that's a really important point. And I've gotten some feedback from people who have served in the military, uh, who listen to this podcast, and all I will say is, uh, you know, if you're not dealing with any sort of signs of post-traumatic stress disorder, I think that's great. More power to you. I hope that you never have any of those, you know, uh, experiences. However, if you do have any of the symptoms, uh, the nightmares, the anxiety, the frustration, the fear, please don't keep it to yourself. Um, I'm interested in hearing about that sort of thing. I I know you don't always want to talk to some random guy who, you know, does a podcast, um, but if uh, if you know somebody who's willing to talk to you about it, or you can see someone who's a, a professional role of helping people deal with that sort of thing, please talk to someone about it because it's. I know from personal experience, having dealt with much smaller forms of trauma, uh, it's not healthy to keep it in, and you got to let it out somehow. So you know, right? Talk to people about it, etc. Get some help if you need it. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about in terms of the military was uh, a guy named Andrew Basevich. Uh, he was a really interesting guy who was recently on a uh, show called Bill Moyers and Company. Uh, BillMoyers.com is the website. Uh, yeah, Moyers and Company is the podcast, and they have the video interview on the website. It's really interesting. Uh, Basevich served in Vietnam. He retired in 1990s as a colonel in the U.S. military. He uh, went on to earn his Ph.D. in American diplomatic history, and then he taught at West Point before joining the faculty at Boston University. His son was killed by an uh, IED in Iraq in 1990. Oh, well, let me figure out the year here. 2007. His son was killed by an IED uh, in 2007. And so he knows what he's talking about. He's been in the thick of everything. Um, and he lost a son to the war in Iraq. And this discussion he has with Bill Moyers is really interesting. I encourage you to listen to the whole thing. Uh, one little excerpt here is when he says, talking about the, the, the degree to which people in the United States don't or aren't able to look at the world from other people's point of view, especially when we're in, interested in uh, taking action, for instance, in the Middle East to do with Iran. He says, quote, Let's walk outside the studio and ask a hundred of our fellow citizens, tell me about what happened between the United States and Iran in 1953, and none of them will know. Let's go to Tehran and ask them, and a hundred out of a hundred Iranians will say, oh, that's when the CIA and British MI6 collaborated to overthrow a democratically elected government and to reinstall the Shah on on his throne. 
an action undertaken with absolutely no concern about the well-being of the Iranian people, but in pursuit of near-term strategic interest, end quote. So he makes the point that, unfortunately, the United States often acts only in terms of our own short-term strategic interest, and that often makes people in the countries where we're taking action a little resentful. Imagine that. Imagine how you would feel if German soldiers came over here and said, oh, we're going to get rid of your elected president and put in uh, a a dictator. Uh, We would probably be pretty angry about that, yeah? And the point he makes is that, you know, we have to be able to look at the world from other people point of view. And I think that's an important thing for people to keep in mind. And that's just one of the points he makes during this interview. It's a really interesting discussion. He's got a lot of good experience, and he has some important things that he has to say about uh, his time in the military and his perspective on the world. And I encourage you to take a look at that. It'll be in the show notes, all this stuff. I have links to all of it. fbesp.org slash synapse is the blog. And uh, yeah, check it out. There's some good stuff there. All right, let's talk about money. Um, A lot of people have been sending me information about this crash that took place at the BATS. And uh, the BATS is this new form of trading. I actually don't even understand exactly what it is. Uh, It's the Better Alternative Trading System, one of the largest stock exchanges in the U.S. where more than 10% of trading happens. Uh, It's based in Kansas City. It has offices in New York and London. It had expected to be riding high. This is from an article in the Los Angeles Times. And it says, um, yeah, it expected to be riding high after using its own platform Friday to launch its stock. So my guess is that the exchange has a trading system that it's offering. I don't really know the details of that. But anyway, um, there was instead a devastating software bug in the BAT system disrupted trading, arming, alarming investors with its similarity to the flash crash in May 2010. And I talked about that last week. Uh, you may remember the flash crash that I discussed. This is this high-frequency trading uh, causes... There are these computer algorithms that feed off each other, and then they're, 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 they're feeding information to each other. So if one of them gets an idea, oh, i got to sell GE, uh, all the rest of the computers will, oh, he sold GE, why? And it wouldn't be he, it would be it. Because computers, programs don't have gender, I know that. Uh, although on Futurama, Bender talks to the you know fembot, and it's all very ridiculous. Anyway, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. So the point is that this... Uh, the the flat the, the computer algorithm sometimes causes each other to crash and it's a snowball effect so that if one of them sells the stock the stock can suddenly start plummeting and it happens in a fraction of a second uh, so that's what happened in the bats thing now the 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 bats global market exchange organizers people said it, it was not high frequency trading that was to blame it was a glitch in the software and so apparently there's some sort of distinction there. Um, but yeah, so it said companies with ticker symbols A through BF were impacted. The exchange said in a statement Sunday that included BATS's own symbol, uh, which sent its share price from $16 to less than a penny at one point before the company canceled trading. And it also affected Apple because their symbol is APPL, and it was halted for five minutes, causing it to slump nearly 10% before recovering. Now, the reason that trading stopped on this thing is because of this thing known as a circuit breaker. If in, in a lot of these systems, it, they build in a sort of fail-safe device, uh, whereby if the trading starts to get really crazy, then the, they have this sort of thing built in that will just sort of shut down all the trading all at once until they can figure out what's going on or sort of reset the system. But this is a temporary thing, and it sort of... 
they're relying on the circuit breakers to automatically, and they're not required, by the way. This is something that exchanges do on their own, and they they will hopefully stop this crazy trading before it gets too bad. But of course, as we saw, Apple's stock plummeted very quickly, and it was a great concern, and people were, you know, what's going on? At this point, people don't say, oh, we can't figure out what's going on. Instead, they realize, oh, this is about... Um, the high-frequency trading, or in this case, it was the case of a glitch. So they assume that it's that sort of thing, and we hope that the circuit breaker will kick in in time. But in the meantime, there's a lot of confusion usually that goes on with these things, and I think it's just going to get more and more common to see these flash crashes happening uh, unless there's some more regulation that puts a damper on the ability of these uh, high-frequency trading algorithms to sort of do their business in the stock exchanges. It's all very crazy, and I think it's very chaotic, and I think we need to... Uh, do something to try to stop the uh, the crazy highs and lows, the sweeps, uh, the, the the peaks and valleys. Uh, it's 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 pretty remarkable. And speaking of remarkable high-speed trading, there was a really crazy article in Business Week this week. Uh, the headline is, Stock trading is about to get 5.2 milliseconds faster. And it's all about this new uh, th this company called Summit that is building, uh, installing a new set of undersea telecom cables between New York and London in order to let the data go between those two stock markets at record speeds. Because right now, now, this is quoting from the article, uh, it will reduce the time it takes data to travel round trip between New York and London to 59.6 milliseconds from the current top speed of 64.8 milliseconds, according to Hibernia Atlantic, some other company. The, the, continuing to quote the article here, those five milliseconds might not seem like a big deal, but to the handful of electronic trading firms that will have exclusive access to the cable, this will be a huge advantage. Quote, that extra five milliseconds could be worth millions every time they hit the button, says Joseph Hilt, Senior Vice President of Financial Services at Hibernia Atlantic. And this is the part that just baffles, it doesn't baffle me, but it really shows me the difference between how you and I make our money. You know, you go to a job and you, you, you hopefully create something of value or you deliver things or you provide an important service and you're paid for your time, right? But but these traders on Wall Street now, it, it really is casino-like because it's all about how fast can the data move and how, how you know, we, we, again, as I've said before, they the computer algorithms will hold the stock for a fraction of a second in order to make a fraction of a penny and they just do it over and over and over again. And it's not about any sort of real benefit to the world. It's just about, it's a form of speculation and it's, it's this sort of casino-like attitude of let's just do whatever we can do to make a tiny bit of money and then just do that over and over and over again. And it's that sort of uh, obsessive thinking, that very, very, very short-term focus on profit that causes the kind of blindness that led to the 2008 stock market crash. Uh, later in the article comes the best part because they're talking about how the the, these data cables are being laid on sh uh, shallow water, and generally that's not done, and here's why. This is later in the article. It says, quote, Much of the Project Express cable line will stretch across the shallow waters of the continental shelf, something most fiber optic cables were built to avoid. In shallower waters, I'm not making this up, in shallower waters, the cables are vulnerable to damage or disruption from fishing and attacks from sharks drawn to their electrical currents. 
I just love the idea of a shark in the water who's going like, Oh, gotta get that stock tree! I'm being electrocuted! What's happening to our stock trading? Ah, it must be another shark attack. Get out there, Queequeg! Take care of those sharks! Get away from the stock trading! Oh, it's ridiculous. We're all going to die. And, you know, that's the thing is that this stuff is crazy and silly. And, I, you know, I talk about sharks attacking stock data pipes. But but the thing is that, you know, if, if people are so obsessed about this and there's so much money going into this, and then you look at, okay, you know, people starving in the U.S. and other countries and, you know, famine in Africa or whatever, and people are like, oh, well, there's no money. Well, there is money, but it's being used to fend off shark attacks from these data cables. Um, so anyway, uh, I came across a quote recently this week uh, from Hajun Chang. And those of you who listen to the show know that I'm a big fan of Hajun Chang. He's a really interesting uh, economist. He's been a consultant to the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the European Investment Bank, Oxfam, various US UN agencies. Uh, he also teaches at the University of Cambridge. And he wrote a book called The 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. And the mark of genius, I think, is when you read someone who, Who's, uh, and Chinny said this in the recent uh, Veteran Gamers show about Tom Bissell. When you read what someone has written and you think, yes, that's exactly what I think. That person put it really, really well. And I've actually been saying this that I'm about to tell you from Hajun Chang uh, for a while now. And so when I read this in his book, I was just like, yes, finally, I'm not insane. I have been vindicated by someone who actually knows what they're talking about when it comes to economics. So this is from his book. Quote, in the run-up to the 2008 financial crisis, our ability to make good decisions was simply overwhelmed because things were allowed to evolve in too complex a manner through financial innovation. So many complex financial instruments were created that even financial experts themselves did not fully understand them unless they specialized in them, and sometimes not even then. The top decision makers of the financial firm certainly did not grasp much of what their businesses were doing. Now, end quote, I will say, I wonder if perhaps this is a benefit for those firms because it allows the CEOs and the CFOs to claim plausible denial when the company is busted for illegal activity or fraud. In other words, if the CEO honestly doesn't understand what these traders are doing with the collateralized debt obligations and the, you know, the, all the rest of it, then they can say, like, I didn't really know what they were up to. We were making massive profits based on fraud, but I didn't know it was fraud because I didn't understand it. And that that that's something that, you know, Lloyd Blankfein and others have sort of used as a viable defense for why they shouldn't go to jail as a res- after all of this fraud committed by their firms. Okay, back to Hajun Chang. Quote, nor could the regulatory authorities fully figure out what was going on. As noted elsewhere in this book, now we are seeing a flood of confessions, some voluntary, others forced, from the key decision makers. If we are going to avoid similar financial crises in the future, we need to restrict severely freedom of action in the financial market. Financial instruments need to be banned unless we fully understand their workings and their effects on the rest of the financial sector and, moreover, the rest of the economy. This will mean banning many of the complex financial derivatives whose workings and impacts have been shown to be beyond the comprehension of even the supposed experts. End quote. 
And as I've said, there were some experts like Brooksley Bourne who were not confused by them. They did comprehend the nature of these derivatives and CDOs, but uh, they, people didn't listen to them. You know, Alan Greenspan and Tim Geithner and Larry Summers said, oh, shut up, lady, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and I really like the fact that he put this out there because, again, it, it sort of verifies what I believe about how crazy these, uh, you know, economic instruments are. And as soon as you talk about regulating or banning them, people, st especially free market fundamentalists, say, oh, no, we can't do that. Uh, we can't limit commerce. You know what? We can. And we should if not understanding them and, and not regulating them leads to this sort of flash crashing and the sort of catastrophe we saw in 2008. Well, you know what? I'm sorry. It needs to be banned because until we can figure out exactly how it works. And if you saw Michael Moore's movie Capitalism, A Love Story, there's a great scene where he goes down to Wall Street and he tries to ask everybody he meets, can you explain CDOs? Can you tell me what a derivative is? And there's a guy who's worked in it for a long time. He tries to explain it and it's very, very hard to make sense of it. Now, that's not to say it's incomprehensible, and I'm not a simpleton who believes that uh, there's no way this stuff could ever be worthwhile, but uh, I think that, you know, as, as they said in the documentary film Inside Job, and if you haven't seen that, you should totally see it. It won the Academy Award last year for the best documentary. It's a great movie. Um, you know, the, the, one of the points they make is that it used to be that the, the brightest minds, the greatest mathematicians in the country were being recruited by industrial design firms and software manufacturers. Now those brilliant scientific and mathematical minds are all being recruited by Wall Street in order to make more and more complex trading algorithms for high-frequency trading and complex financial uh, uh, instruments like collateralized debt obligations that will make the companies a little bit more money. And uh, if that means that regular investors and the rest of us who don't invest suffer as a consequence, well, so be it. And I say, that's not okay. And this is a democracy. Wall Street should be contained in some way by the nature of our democracy and... Uh, that's what Congress needs to do. Unfortunately, Congress is full right now of a whole lot of free market fundamentalists who say, you know, like Mitt Romney, who say, oh, well, you can't put, it, it, it's, it's, if you put restrictions on free trade, then small businessmen and small businesswomen can't, you know, expand their businesses and blah, blah, blah. And we're not talking about small businesses here. We're talking about huge multinational corporations. And I'm sick of seeing them do all this crazy stuff and getting away with it. And meanwhile, the rest of us keep hearing that there's no money for schools, there's no money to fix the roads, there's no money to repair bridges and the rest of it. But that's not the big economic news of the week. The big economic news of the week has to do with Foxconn. And if you've listened to this show, you know that i am I've been following Foxconn for a while, and it's a fascinating series of stories over the last five years about Foxconn. Anyway, uh, Foxconn, for those who don't know, is a place where uh, Apple and a lot of other companies make their electronic stuff. And recently, as a result of some popular pressure that came about from a variety of places, uh, and last week I talked about one of those sources, and you should look into that, uh, if you don't know about the This American Life story. Anyway, uh, Apple recently paired up with a group called the Fair Labor Association. And FLA, the Fair Labor Association, did this big report. And it came out on uh, March 29th, so two days ago, as I record this now. And it's a fascinating report. I'm going to have a link to it on the website. And you should read the whole thing. 
um, it's it's really remarkable because FLA's whole thing is they're going to work with companies and say, look, here's what we found, and we're going to be honest and you know transparent and all that, and then we're going to work with the company to help it, you know, fix these problems. And so they're working inside the system. Some people say that that leaves the Fair Labor Organization open to you know sort of a whitewashing uh, effect, and it's possible that the company could say, yes, we're going to make these repairs, and then they don't. But FLA says, well, they're making some progress and it looks like they're sort of signing off on it. There's questions about how FLA goes about its business. We'll get to some responses in a minute. But the very nature of the report itself, I think, is really remarkable because some people thought that the FLA report, in so far as it was trying to do anonymous interviews with workers in the Foxconn plant, using iPads, left it open to some questions of, well, how uh, anonymous are these interviews going to be? Isn't it possible that they could have worker ID numbers associated with the interviews or whatever? We, it, it's hard to tell. But even if that's the case, the FLA report is pretty damning. Um, so here are some excerpts from the FLA report. It said, The findings of FLA's nearly month-long investigation revealed serious and pressing non-compliances with FLA's workplace code of conduct, as well as Chinese labor law. Now, I, I'm not a labor expert by any means, and I don't have a good background in labor law from country to country, but my guess is that if you're not even meeting Chinese labor law, you've got some serious problems. It's like on the sense one time there's some medical waste washing up on the beach somewhere and and Chief Wiggum goes come on I'm so sick of these companies dumping their medical waste without a permit it's not like those permits are hard to get uh, another quote from the report. FLA observed at least 50-5-0 issues related to the FLA code, and they have their own sort of code that they've set up, and this is why we expect companies to operate. Uh, so 50 issues related to the FLA code and Chinese labor law, including in the following areas, health and safety, worker integration and communication, and wages and working hours. Another excerpt. The investigation revealed that a considerable number of workers felt generally insecure regarding their health and safety. Elsewhere... Investigators found that workers were largely alienated in fact or in perception from factory safety and healthy committees, health committees and had little confidence in the management of health and safety issues. Later, it should be noted that committees may not be truly representative of the workers because management nominates candidates for election. The result is committees composed not by those who need representation, but instead are dominated by management representatives. End quote. And this is something that I, you know, other people have said that the, the lack of independent unions in China make it very difficult for us to believe that workers are going to get their voices actually heard in any way, shape, or form in Foxconn or other places in China. And it's not just China, of course. There are other countries where independent unions are not allowed, and that causes serious problems in how workers have their rights respected. And of course, the fact that there are no independent unions, the fact that environmental issues are um, not taken seriously by a lot of Chinese government officials, uh, makes it cheaper to produce stuff in China. That's the reason why Apple's in China. And I had a friend recently who said, you know, don't you think Apple might be able to... Uh, make it in the United States and and then say, oh, look, we've made it in the U.S. and it's, you know, union made and this and that. Because, and, and it's true, Apple has never been all about cheap products. Their, their whole shtick is, this is the hip new gadget and we create this marketing hype and people got to get it and who cares how expensive it is. But, 
The counterpart, of course, is if they can make it for $50 cheaper in China than they can make it in the United States, then they can't market that difference and make people care enough about it to make up that profit that's lost. Um, so I don't know. There, there's a whole lot of things here. Anyway, one more quote from the FLA report. 14% uh, of the workers may not receive fair compensation for unscheduled overtime. The assessors discovered that unscheduled overtime was only paid in 30-minute increments. This means, for example, that 29 minutes of overtime work results in no pay. End quote. And you can bet that the you know executives and the managers at the Foxconn plant aren't just sort of saying, "Oh, whoops, sorry about that." No, they're almost—I don't know for sure—but I would bet good money on the idea that the Foxconn management is saying, "You're going to work for eight hours and twenty-nine minutes, and they're going to make all that extra, you know, production, and you're not going to get a cent of extra money for that twenty-nine minutes of overtime work." And uh, so, yeah, it's a fascinating report. I definitely encourage everybody to take a look at the whole thing. And it'll be interesting to see, okay, so the report's one thing, and then the next step is going to be, okay, how does Apple respond to this report? What changes do they actually make? How do they actually improve things for the workers in the Foxconn plants so that we don't have as many people jumping off the buildings and whatnot going on there? Um, but as I said, uh, there's been a response from this group called SACOM, which is uh, located in Hong Kong, and I, I will have a link on this on the website. You should definitely check out their response because they say... Fox, it's good that they've issued the report. Um, in the report, FLA pointed out several pressing issues at Foxconn, including working hours, health and safety, industrial relations, compensation, and interns. And then they say this. Foxconn is notorious for its harsh management methods, which is one of the factors triggered in the spate of suicides in the company in 2010. Yet, the problem of harsh management and work pressure has been tactfully omitted in the report, and the gross violation of forced internship was not addressed at all. And then they go through some other things in the report and some other things that are not in the report. And again, you should definitely check out SACOM's response because um, the FLA report's one thing, and it's a good thing. I'm glad FLA is doing this report, and I'll be very interested to see if if it can, and I think it probably can, have an impact of positively affecting the lives of the workers in this Foxconn plant. However, um, I'm nervous about the tendency that these companies have. We saw it with Nike. We've seen it with a lot of other companies where they hire a, a, a group to do some sort of evaluation and to make some changes, and then we find out five years later that very little has actually changed. And meanwhile, public pressure is off because the company has made this big display of trying to make improvements, and so it's up to us to stay tuned to this story and to keep the pressure on Apple to make sure the changes stick and make sure that things do improve in a real way for the people who put together these devices that we all love and use every day. All right, let's move along to education. Uh, I'm a teacher, for those who don't know, and I love teaching. I think it's awesome. And I'm in Wisconsin, which has is currently undergoing some very interesting changes in the way that teachers function, especially uh, the way that um, unions function for teachers. And there was some news recently about a federal judge who just struck down some of Scott Walker's uh, changes to the way that unions function. And so we're waiting to see the fallout of all that. And of course, there's a recall election going on, and it was just certified that you know we have lots and lots of votes, uh, or signatures for the recall election. So it's going to go ahead, and uh, the former or the mayor of Milwaukee, Tom Barrett, who lost to Scott Walker in the last governor election, is now going to run against him in the recall. 
so anyway, I've been, there's a lot to say about that. I'm not here to talk about that. Uh, what I do want to talk about is this news story I saw from ABC News. Uh, the headline is, New York City bans Halloween, birthdays, aliens, and more on school tests. And the long and short of this is that uh, there, there's been a, a new mandate issued by the city's Department of Education uh, banning certain words for fear that the tests in which they are included could appear biased or evoke unpleasant emotions in students. And in every case, from what I can tell, these have to do with religious bias. So I'm quoting from the article now. Dinosaurs, according to the New York Post, uh, were banned because they reference evolution, which fundamentalist students might not agree with. Birthdays are not celebrated by Jehovah's Witnesses, and Halloween suggests paganism, so those words are not allowed, and so is dancing because some sects object to it, uh, according to the paper. Also on the list of topics that companies are asked to stay away from are creatures from outer space, homes with swimming pools, computers, vermin, junk food, abuse, terrorism, divorce, any references to disease and holidays. Uh, a spokeswoman for the Department of Education told the Post that the banned topics do not constitute censorship, but a way for, quote, students to complete practice exams without distraction, end quote. End of my excerpt from the article. Now, as a teacher, I, I can understand the point of view that some administrators and some uh, teachers have that if students are focused on some let's say the kid's supposed to be learning how to read or they're supposed to be doing word problems in math and there's something in here, suddenly a reference to evolution comes up and they get sidetracked into talking about, oh, I don't believe in evolution, it's an unproven theory, blah, 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 spotted moth, whatever, uh, that might distract them from learning the the core skill they're supposed to be learning at the time. However, I believe that this is a mistake because what it does is it, it results in a, a very bland, beige, flavorless curriculum that is completely divorced from the real world that the students live in every day. And if the, if the examples are boring, if the stories they're reading are boring, if the historical examples are denuded of their historical context and they don't have exciting, interesting things in them, students are much more likely to tune out the discussion altogether. Now, that's not to say that, as some people have suggested, jokingly, that, oh, all the article, you know, the, the stories should be about drive-by shootings and it should just be about like, oh, you know, Scarface is trying to sell 10 keys of cocaine or whatever. No, obviously not. But I think that the more we say you can't say these words, uh, the less realistic education becomes for students. And that's a mistake because more than anything else, I think students, and it was true about me when I was a student, uh, they want to know how is this stuff going to be useful to me in the real world? How does this relate to real life? And how am I going to use this in the future? And I think that if we uh, ban words because they could be uncomfortable for some students, that's a bad thing because then other students who want to talk about those things or who are interested in those uh, details, uh, who might, you know, you might have a kid who's interested in aliens. And so if they if they have a, a question about that, you know, it's just based in uh, this spaceship abducts seven people and they return five people. How many people are left on the spaceship? That's going to be interesting to some kids. So I think we should have more uh, word problems in math that have to do with alien abduction. I'm going on the record saying that here and now, yes. All right, moving right along, uh, I saw an article on CNET Asia recently, and the headline is, The Impending Robots Invasion. That's right, people. We're talking about killer robots now. 
Uh, this is, <laughs> it's sort of a humorous approach to the article, but man, let me tell you something. You're not going to be laughing when the robots actually take over. And the first sentence of the article is this, quote, For those of you reluctant to welcome our new robot overlords, it may, might be time for you to reconsider your stance. Um, and, you know, again, it's a joke, but it's, um, there are some ways in which robots are being made very effective. And as we see in Pakistan, they're effective at killing. And I worry about what's going to happen when they become autonomous, man. Skynet, it's not a joke. All right, let's talk about hip hop. I actually don't have an artist for you to listen to this week. Instead, I want to talk to you about uh, a human rights uh, situation involving hip hop. Amnesty International recently released an urgent action having to do with two brothers that were arrested and are currently serving prison sentences in Cuba uh, because of what they were listening to uh, on Christmas Day 2010 uh, in the world of hip hop. Uh, quoting from the urgent action, uh, brothers Antonio Michael Lima Cruz and Marcos Mac. Kale Lima Cruz have been in prison since Christmas Day 2010. They are members of the Cuban Council of Human Rights Rapporteurs and both are independent journalists. They were arrested as they were holding a Christmas celebration with a group of family and friends in their home in Holguin, eastern Cuba. During the celebration, they played songs by a Cuban hip-hop group whose lyrics criticized the lack of freedom of expression in Cuba. They also danced on the street in front of their house whilst holding the Cuban flag. Shortly after midnight, police officers and officials from the Department of State security arrived, accompanied by approximately 40 government supervisors. The police entered by force and arrested the brothers. Later the same day, police returned and arrested their father and mother, as well as several other friends who were at the, par uh, the family house at the time. The parents and friends of the brothers were detained for several days before being released without charge. Now this is, I hope you agree, this is messed up. People should have the right to listen to hip-hop and other forms of music, regardless of whether it criticizes the government or not. And I'm outraged by this, so I've written letters. I encourage you to write a letter and uh, encourage the Cuban government to release these guys, uh, because hip-hop is a human right, and we should be able to listen to stuff even if it's talking about fighting the power and uh yeah i wouldn't want to be arrested for listening to public enemy and uh, i don't think people should be arrested in cuba for listening to the wrong hip-hop either all right, that's going to pretty much do it for this week. Um, I'd like to give thanks to everybody who's given me feedback. We have our first ever iTunes review. Thanks to Jason G for that and his kind feedback in other formats. Uh, the Duchess gave some good feedback, so thanks to her. And Richard Primrose and then Phil uh, sent me a story on the Apple stock, and I did an interview with Phil Olson uh, for his new podcast that's coming out soon, so you can listen for that. Virtual Pizza will be up soon, and I'll link to it from the blog. Uh, and let's end with a quote, shall we? Um, here it is. The moment you recognize what is beautiful in this world, you stop being a slave. And that's from Aravind Adiga, who is an Indian writer whose debut novel, The White Tiger, won the Booker Prize in 2008. So there you go, people. Start to recognize what is beautiful in this world. And uh, have a good week. Thanks for listening. I will stop talking now. Deviant Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.